0: hi everyone welcome to real world parenting tips and scripts for parents on roads less traveled i'm dr laura anderson a child and family psychologist and i'm glad you're here as you settle in to listen let me reassure you that you are in the right place if you're a loving parent looking for answers and encouragement and maybe even a chuckle amidst hard things If you're a loving parent who's raising a child on a journey different from your own as a child and are seeking a compass as you navigate uncharted waters. This is the place for you if you get the theory of parenting advice you keep hearing, but for the love of chocolate and curry and all other nearly perfect things, that theory never quite works as planned with your actual children. Finally, you are in exactly the right place if you're a therapist or clinician who works with kids, teens, and families. My intention is that these episodes will deepen your work and change lives. So in this intro, I get two to three minutes here to boil down 30 years of work in my psychology offices and my experience as a mom in the trenches and let you know what I'll offer with this podcast. I almost called it lessons from our living rooms or couch conversations because my offerings will be things I have learned and keep learning from the vantage point of both my living room couch and my therapy office couch. The aim of this podcast is to offer hope, support, wisdom, and experience in community, and to provide clinicians a window, and window. To provide clinicians a window into what our recommendations actually mean for real families in real life. We will talk all things kid and teen related, and shine a spotlight on families navigating identities related to race, gender, and adoption. We will explore common child and adolescent mental health and wellness related topics. The hope is to leave you with a greater understanding of your child's needs and a, you got this, energy. Episodes will also feature actual practical tips and answers to questions including, well, what do I say when? And, well, what do I do when? So that you feel equipped to handle the day-to-day parenting puzzles we face. So pour yourself a cuppa or lace up some shoes or hide in your busy parent bathroom for a bit, and join me for head and heart conversations about loving and living with children walking past less often traveled. Have I mentioned I'm glad you're here? I trust that you'll be glad too. So, hi everyone, welcome. I'm thrilled that you're all joining us today. And I'm even more thrilled to be here today with Dr. Cedric Alexander, who sits in a really unique place in this conversation, this very important conversation around uh, policing, community policing, and safety for kids mm-hmm. of color, uh, as well as good conversations for for white people to be having with their white kids around safety and policing, et cetera. So we're going to do a little bit, have a have a quick snack of a conversation around policing safety and hard conversations with young people so it's my honor and a privilege to invite dr alexander here today thanks so much for being here
1: thank you for having me laura it's great to uh hear you and uh have this conversation with I'm, i'm looking forward to it
0: well wonderful we're gonna we're gonna jump right in and just just tell me a little bit i know you've had uh, a, a long career, an intersection with uh, working in policing. Uh, just give me a quick blurb about what that what that looked like. How many years? And then talk to me a little bit about what you see as some of the the trends that that folks and families need to know about in policing today.
1: Yeah. So my policing career began many years ago, back in in Florida, and uh, started out in '77. Got out in. Of policing in nineteen ninety two and then I then you and I met a few years later in school, uh at Wright State University. I was just about to finish up when you were coming in. And uh that don't seem like a long time ago, but actually that's been a long time ago already. And uh so but since that time I've had an opportunity to to do a variety of different things, practice as a psychologist for a while, got back into policing, became chief of police in Rochester, New York, and and went on to subsequently become chief in uh, DeKalb County, Georgia, which is a large suburban area there in Metro Atlanta. And more recently, I've been deputy mayor, uh, went back to Rochester to be deputy mayor at the request of the mayor and Today, now, currently, I'm I'm retired. Do a lot of consulting, and very much involved in this whole conversation around reform and reimagining police, and all of the challenges that uh, we're confronted with in American policing today. So, that's kind of a quick snapshot of where I've been, uh, but more importantly, it's the issues that many communities across this country are confronted with at this very moment, and that is police and community relations and the complexity sometimes that come with that
0: yeah no I appreciate that and it is I think it's really important to highlight the complexity of the situation as I mentioned you know I think in in my world there are two camps of people one who think that that police are always right and, and another camp who think that they're they're always wrong and yet I often reflect on on the challenges inherent to the work that sets people up to To have to make really, really, you know, quick, obviously, potentially life-altering, life-ending decisions all day, every day, and as we know as psychologists, that takes a toll on on well-being, on on decision-making, on impulse control, on all all kinds of things. So, um, I, I imagine that you have. <laughs> A lot to say about how hard that work is to do. Uh, that's an understatement. But also, what what are the greatest kinds of reform that, that you see are necessary?
1: Well, actually, we are not seeing an increase of uh, of uh, issues regarding people of color in the, in the. So, you know, this alleged increase of negative interaction between police and communities of color is not a new phenomenon. This has been ever since the beginning of policing, particularly with communities of color, it's just that this is just as this what uh, black and brown people have been reporting for years. And many parts of our community just did not want to accept the fact uh, that a lot of this negative police behavior was taking place. But now with the advent of technology, i.e. body cameras and cameras that are all very much a part of our environment today uh, is capturing uh, these interactions. And sometimes these interactions being at the fault of, of, of citizens, uh, but also being at some concern from our, from our police community. So I think in all of this is that as we continue to evolve technologically, people begin to see these types of behaviors oftentimes that are carried out. It, it, it forces all of us to take a new level of responsibility and to help train our officers better, to select our officers better and have a great expectation around uh, accountability and transparency, which are words we hear a lot of that gets tossed around, but they really have to be substantive and, and, and have some meaning to them.
0: Yeah, are, are you, what do you see, do you, do you, is implicit bias training part of what they do? Have you seen that as something that that is helpful? I heard a lot of suggestions that you had in there too about, right, I mean, obviously training and accountability. What do you know about implicit bias training and if that, if that is known to be helpful?
1: Well, you know, uh, certainly implicit and explicit bias mm-hmm. training is very important uh, important to all of us because we all struggle with some implicit biases around people, places, and things. And so the more that we're aware of what those implicit biases are, those biases that we're very much unconscious of, it helps us to be able to engage a variety of different populations, not just based on the obvious race, uh, but based on a number of other variables uh, that, uh, that can get in the way of, of decisions and how we treat people and think about people that we come in contact with. So, uh, yes, the the uh, uh, implicit bias training is great, but there's a lot of research out there that suggests it really does not do very much good. Uh, but I would contend that, and the, certainly the training I've been doing around implicit, explicit bias training can be of great value but you have to be able to measure it in some type of way so that we can determine whether what our officers are learning is being carried into the field and sometimes that does not happen because we can send folks to training all we want but we have to have a way to measure that they're doing what we're asking them to do and that has to be, become a part of their evaluation process where the training is reinforced, uh, not just by going to class and checking a box, but actually having opportunity to observe our police personnel, uh, utilize some of those techniques, evaluate them on it. And, uh, uh, and when they're doing something great, like in de-escalation for an example, which is a major part of police training today, uh, but in that de-escalation training, we need to be able to, as supervisors, we need to be able to say that, yeah, you know what, Officer Alexander did a great job here. Let me reinforce this to him using his body camera, uh, images, and places where I could have been done better it's an opportunity for us to go over that as well. So it's utilizing technology to help us to, you know, to advance those human or those human interactions, which uh, traditionally we have so much struggled with.
0: Yeah, and it, right. It seems that it's layers. You've highlighted some really uh, important points there around scope and depth of training and reinforcement so that so that what what they're being taught actually gets applied out in the field too, with so many quick acting decisions that have to be made. And, and I appreciate the, the ideas about implicit bias training because it does seem like the you know, as an outsider looking in, it it really seems as if one of the key conversations is around who is perceived as dangerous, right? If, if who who is perceived as threatening enough to warrant a level of force that then later you know um, proves to be so far beyond the norm or what is needed, um, and that that really feels like generations of conversations in the U S right. And the stereotypes and the perpetuation of lots of, of negative information around men of color in particular, that, that, um, that, that you'd have to unpack in, in addition to doing the training of logistics and, and accountability. So, um, yeah, sounds like a lot of layers and, and, and I'm glad to hear there are folks working on it. If you were, if you were a parent in a community, what, what can they do? What can parents do to advocate that some of the training you described that you do happen in local police? What role, if any, where are their places of advocacy if they'd like to see change in there? Oh,
1: they have a great deal. You know, every community have a great deal of responsibility in that. If you have a police department, your police department work for you, and your police department should be responsive to what you feel your wants and needs are. So regardless of whether you live in an urban city or you live in a rural area or you live in a suburban community, uh, don't take any of that for granted, is that you meet with your police officials, you meet with your elected officials, and you ask them uh, to, to, to share with you how, how officers are recruited, how they're trained, and how is the training reinforced. And for you as a citizen, you wanna know more uh, about these kinds of things in terms of what your police department is doing And Don't let them sell you with, well, we do this type of training, that type of training. Great, tell me more about that. And how is that training reinforced in your department? How is it measured that your men and women are carrying out what they've been trained to do? So any citizen have a responsibility uh, to ask those questions and you don't have to ask those questions and you don't have to feel like, well, I don't have no reason to answer those questions. I live in a suburban neighborhood and average household income is 100,000 miles a year. And we don't have any issues with police. It's not a matter of whether you have issues with police or not. It's a matter of you knowing that you have good, strong, and and, and fair-minded and constitutional police officers who have been selected, highly selected, highly trained, closely supervised, and have an opportunity to make sure you're getting the very best of public safety, uh, in which you you are owed as being a taxpayer citizen, taxpaying citizen.
0: Yeah, and I think it's really that point that you you make too about like some people believe they're buffered from this. I think that's a really Like And that's to the point with uh, this sense that there is an increase, quote unquote, which, as you said and clarified, there's not an increase in incidents. There's an increase in coverage of incidents and and hopefully people outside of the inner circle. So hopefully white people for whom police violence has not historically uh, been been an issue. In fact, you know, white I mean, for white families and white people I know growing up for me, like they're truly just purely viewed as as protection, as safety, as as support in a jam. I mean, there was no complicated messaging in my world growing up around
1: police officers. Um, Yeah, but you know, but Laura, here's something else mm -hmm. to note too. You have also very well-organized, expensive, high-income, predominantly Black neighborhoods in this country too. A lot of people don't know that they exist, but they do and i'm talking about predominantly black neighborhoods high-end household average incomes hundred thousand miles a year and above and even in communities as such it becomes it 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 becomes an economic issue just as much as a race issue Mm -hmm. so me being african-american if i live in a predominantly african-american neighborhood we have very low crime if any crime at all uh, but I read and hear about the crimes in the city that's adjacent to me, but out here where I live, it's not a problem. Those, those African Americans in those communities just like in predominantly white communities or any community of race or culture, of culture, I don't like using the term race because there's no scientific basis to it, but to cultures, the variety of different cultures and ethnic groups that are out there, whether you're predominant or not, you have a responsibility. No matter how quiet and nice and serene and safe your community may feel, you still have a responsibility to ask your public safety community, your public safety officials, tell me about my police department. And understand the operative word here being my, my police department. You guys do a great job, but tell me more about who you hire, how you hire, how you supervise, how you train. You still want to ask those same questions uh, to them as you would anyone else.
0: Yeah, no, and I think those are those are excellent points to consider too. Because you're right, we do. I think even the, the 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 good liberal, I'm uh, using air quotes here for those who can't see me, assumption has often been that first there was, and this is an overly simplified arc. But my sense was first people felt like that, that, uh, incidences of police violence were, were one-off and isolated, or just didn't happen, you know, differentially by race or culture for years. Then there was an awareness that this, among the majority, among people who don't live this reality every day, then there was an awareness that it happens a lot, but the assumption that I was hearing in conversations with people was quietly, uh, that, well there were more crime, you know, there's more crime, there are more drugs, people are acting in more unpredictable ways in these circumstances. And if they were using good liberal interpretations of that, they were saying, oh, because of the, you know, redlining and racism, then you have communities of folks who are, um, you know, behaving in ways with police that end up having them uh in in more aggressive situations so there was this really weird i felt assumption that like oh it's a problem but it's a problem because of of what's happened in these communities which has then led to you know mental health and addiction problems which spikes violence so it was really hard for folks and a lot of my um audience here are transracially adoptive parents and and not all but many families white parents that are raising um kids of color are doing so in suburbs or or rural areas and so Mm -hmm. there was an assumption that this wouldn't be uh, an issue for their kids that that their kids are in you know small towns and communities that their kids um haven't had the same haven't faced the same hardships necessarily because many adoptive parents also across statistically tend to be a, a bit more resourced um and, and not struggle with the same intersection of uh, challenges with socioeconomic status. So the long-winded question short, what I heard people try to say was that, that this is a problem, but it's really only a problem in the most sort of um, uh, struggling economic areas and that it won't be an issue for their kids of color as long as they just you know behave appropriately. <laughs> What, what are your thoughts about, about that and what, what you would say to transracially adoptive parents who are figuring out how to prepare their kids for the reality of some of the bias that's still held?
1: Well, the reality of it is they're still thinking very white. <laughs> and you can have children of color, but you're still thinking very white. And what I mean by that is that you may be white and not see that as an issue and maybe have never seen that as an issue. But when you adopt children of color and more specifically black and brown children, when they're separated from you, they are going to be potentially exposed to the same thing that they would be in any other environment because everybody may not be as, as, uh, 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 responsible as you are in your thinking and how you see and how you experience the world. So, uh, so, 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 you you should not. And I would encourage white parents not to adopt this. Where we're out here in this community, so it's not, you you know, it's not a problem for us with my children of color, because that may not necessarily be true. That's why you want to know your police department, not the fact you're in the suburbs and you to have low crime issues. You want to know your police department. How, how diverse is that department? What are their thoughts around uh, uh, culturally sensitive issues? How do they deal with diversity? Not just diversity in terms of obvious or race, but what is the attitude of that chief and others around diversity in general? Whether it's my special needs child and I can have a special needs child. Are they going to be treated fairly and equitable if I'm not present? Are someone going to pose... An implicit bias towards them, on them. You follow what I'm saying? I do, I do. So, uh, so those are the, those are the, so those are the kind of things that we have to give thought to, and we got to think about them deeper than just beyond ourselves.
0: Yeah, and I think that's a really important point in terms of the the bubble. You often hear folks talk about when when you're in a known community. And, you, and your children are younger, then they're, they're viewed under the protective umbrella of your whiteness as white parents. And then as right. your kids move, they get older, number one, right? Because we know that as a general rule, there's some research that says that white people overestimate the age of black children by like five years. So once you get a child, you know you start getting into 11, 12, sadly enough, as we've seen in cases like Tamir Rice and others, um, the perception of how old a black child is, and then again, as I spoke about earlier, how threatening or dangerous or likely to behave in those ways, um, they are the, that those, your child moving in the world is not protected by the umbrella of your whiteness. If they're encountering, right. uh, police right. officers, I right. don't know. So you
1: got to get outside of your, you know, of your, uh, here again, uh, and you can frame it however you want, but you got to get outside of your sensibility privileged and put yourself in the position of someone else. Uh, in this case, your child or loved one, or whatever the case may have to be. And people have the best of intentions, uh, but we have to be ever so thoughtful in, in remembering when our children are away from us, your black or brown child is gonna be seen by some, not by all, right. but may be seen by some as just, what are you doing here in this neighborhood?
0: So yes, you bring up the point um, about safety, and I think that's a really important one for transracially adoptive parents to hear, that this idea that um, safe neighborhoods are the suburban neighborhoods somehow, that, that white people, and affluent, as you pointed out, people um, you know often feel like the, the, the more affluent, the lower crime, the safer it is for their child. And yet, if you are a young black, Man walking through these affluent neighborhoods, your safety is at risk in ways it might not be in a lot of other mixed SES and mixed race communities. So, again, that's that's uh, an invitation to my listeners to to take off their white lens when they're work hard to work around the white lens when they're imagining which neighborhoods are safe and in which ways they need to protect their their black and brown children to to handle what are potentially dangerous situations. So. Um, right. Yeah, thank you for that. So when, when I talk to my parents, the, the parents that I work with, they often ask me, at what age should I start talking to kids about it? Like, how do I talk to my children about the fact that police may or may not view them differently based on the color of their skin? Well,
1: well you know, different children are at different developmental places you may have a child as early as six or seven age years of age who may ask you a question around race or see something that take place that doesn't look right or feel right for them and they surprisingly bring it up right or you may have a child that's a little older that's preteens, who may bring up the subject around race and how they see it and how they see the Uh, 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 or the mistreatment of different people uh, in some form or fashion. But here's the thing. Everyone knows their child. Whether it is your biological child, your uh, adopted child, whatever. You know the behaviors and the nuances of your children and what you feel is age-appropriate. Children are exposed to so much more information. So we should not assume that issues around race, they don't pick up on it, hear it, or respond to it either quietly or with their other friends. And you have to be able to just have the conversation because it's not they're fearful. A lot of times it's the parents who are fearful and just have the conversation. But more than anything, when you teach your children about fairness and equity, And everybody is created equally. And everybody should be treated fairly. We all are advocates of fairness. Is that now that they say it, what's important to children is they got to see it. Hmm. Yes. They got to see it. So if you want to really reinforce it, and if you're really meaning what you say as a parent, have the conversation. Kids are far more, they got far more information around things in life than I did being a baby boomer, or many of them being uh, Generation X or young millennials. You know, have the age-appropriate conversation, but you have to know your own child. But don't let your fear get in the way of having an open conversation with your children around this issue around diversity and equity. Yeah. And 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 you would be surprised the type of response you may get, and be prepared to respond to. But then the main thing theme is here: it's about equity, it's about fairness, it's about uh, a country that espouses itself as being constitutional, and we all are going to hold this country and our leadership res- responsible to that. But have that conversation with your children. And 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 don't be pensive about it. Be planful, but don't be pensive. Because many of these kids are already having conversations. You know? They right. got all kind of friends before they get out of elementary school.
0: Right, and all social media. Of- They're getting a lot of news about current events and a lot of current event news, um, you know, right. cycles through That's these right. things.
1: That's right. So maybe the only... People
0: that's not prepared to talk about this may not be your children. <laughs> right. It may be. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah, no, I mean, I think it, there's a lot of fear for other, uh, white, particularly yeah. for white parents who are raising um, children of color and black children. The idea of introducing to them that they may be in danger or that other people may not like them. You know, I'm, I'm using overly simplified language, but when you're talking to kids sometimes, You know, that's what parents fear that their children will hear. Other people may find you dangerous. Other people may, you know, not treat you the same way as your friends just because of your skin color uh, while they're also trying to balance... how, you know, to continue to support a child who isn't being raised with racial mirrors in the home in feeling good about their skin color. So it's very common for transracially adopted kids to come to their parents and say, I wish my skin looked like yours, I don't, you know, already struggling with making sense of that. So it becomes a double whammy for transracially adoptive parents to imagine introducing the idea that there are elements or places that they need to hold themselves differently. But, but honestly, we don't have a choice. The way I see it is we signed up for it. It is a hard conversation to imagine, and we better get skilled to do it because we're hurting our children if we're not preparing them um, right. to to navigate this world. That again isn't going to see them as under the the wing, and and in some ways the bubble of our protection handicaps them in, in figuring out these situations. Ironically, so I know you know you see a lot of videos out there, and this is always an interesting conversation for me too about like how how to talk to your kids about you know we hope they don't encounter police officers but if they do you know you see lots of videos about keeping your hands visible and and and, and part of me I always think like gosh we're, we're 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 trying to train them to to sort of beat the odds we know the problem isn't their behavior during a police stop or during encounters with the police and we know that the problem is what you've already discussed—a larger systemic uh, issue that needs a multi-layered approach. And yet, right. and, and yet, you also need to be able to just say practically: have a receipt in your bag when you leave the store. Always take a receipt for whatever you've purchased. Uh, if you are driving and you get stopped, always keep your hands out. No sudden movements. Um, you know, there are the there are the practical um, skills that we talk to young folks about. What are what are your thoughts about making behaviors that specific in the context of talking to kids
1: well they need to be specific the time out for making yourself feel good okay it's times out for making yourself feel good it's time to be open and honest you know what johnny who is white johnny don't have to think about those things ain't nobody at home telling johnny hey keep the hands on the steering wheel and uh Don't be peeking through your neighbor's window at night, knocking on your girlfriend's window. Nobody's telling him that. But for a little black kid, anywhere in America, suburbs, rural areas, anywhere, you may be subject to a different type of interaction. Not because all police are bad, because they're not. It's just that we have a larger systemic issue in this country called racism that we still are going to have to confront because it's so ingrained in everything we do. It's in every segment of our society. And even with ourselves and particularly those white parents, I don't care how liberal you think you are, but you have to have the courage to have that conversation. Yeah. We have conversations about everything else. And we need to be able to talk to our children about this very, thing that affects them if they have children of color uh that they're responsible for whether it's through whether it's biological or whether it's yeah. doctor have the freaking conversation <laughs> yes it's your feet right out of the way because if you as a parent can't have that conversation then who's going to have it with them and but here it, it's not just even having a conversation also laura yeah It's also role modeling to your children what you want from them, what your expectations are, how you treat other people, who you interact with, how you take your children. Have you taken your children to a black museum of art? Right. Are they still running around believing that Christopher Columbus discovered America? (laughs)
0: yes no there's a response there's a lot of responsibility but a point very well taken right. <laughs> sitting in an, in so, an isolated white so, right. world talking about it is isn't going right. to do it either
1: no you got yeah you know expose your children and you get to learn yourself right I how, how nice a liberal i may feel that i am as a black man in america i have blind spots too we all got blind spots yeah. you know we all have blind spots but it's being aware of them and it's having the courage. If we can't do it for ourselves, do it for the children that we all have taken responsibility for, right? And help them get uh, where they need to be because that's how we change the world. That's how we really change the world. Not just by what we think, but it's helped us change those feelings those old age fears and hesitations that we have uh, and stereotypes that we have garnered about each other. And that's how we move away from it. But I would just encourage your parents, your listening audience, take courage, take courage. And none of us can't help the families we're born into. Mm-hmm. Many of us can't help the signals and messages we may have heard from our parents or grandparents growing up. But we have an opportunity to do something different and better. But it just can't be our words. It has to be our words with our actions. And then we got a role model what it is that we want our children to do and be all the time. Because even when we don't think, <laughs> our children are watching and listening. They are watching and and listening. They're watching your body language, your tone, your tenor, your attitude about people, places, and things. They're picking up on it all. Yeah. And if we, family members, who don't resonate with you having a blended family, whatever that blended family may look like, then you need to have a conversation with them, because you're not going to come around my children, and make remarks that is not consistent with what i'm teaching them to be that's mama grandpa aunts uncles cousins friends war buddies whomever
0: yeah no i appreciate no i do i appreciate that it's a there, there is a responsibility to stay in line with family values and to stand up. I mean, and that's what one of the, the the my biggest things is. It's the, the time for upstanders is long past gone, and if you're going to be you know, an ally or an advocate or an anti-racist in this work. Whether you're parenting transracially or or a white person parenting white kids, I mean, I think white kids need to hear these conversations happening. White kids need to understand if they're in mixed company and groups of friends, they have to be mindful. They have to be aware and exactly all the things you just said: who they're interacting with, how they're interacting with, what they're setting their friend of color up for with the decisions they're making in all-white communities. Or, or otherwise, there's a responsibility that comes with with that upstanding privilege, um, and and just the, being an upstander is a privilege, and being able to wield that in a way that uh, impacts other people and makes change is important. So, I <clears throat> I appreciate. Excuse me. I appreciate the the direct reminder that it has to be it has to be courage and you also have to skill build and that's part of what i hope to do through this um you know these conversations and i offer folks resources too there there are people out there you know Having these, having concrete examples about how to have these conversations, what kids need to know. Um, I'll include those resources for folks too to take this conversation deeper because it isn't listening to one podcast and it isn't having one conversation around the table after one current event. It's a, it's a commitment to, to showing up. So, so I know, I know your time is precious and and we've got to kind of wrap up today. But I think what I heard in summary was a lot of great information for parents about being active in their local communities, reaching out to police departments, asking about training and implica- in application of the training.
1: How um, they being supervised and how did they measure the training. It doesn't matter whether you live in the suburbs or the city.
0: Yeah. Yep.
1: We all, they get accountable, even if we got zero crime. Right. And include... Still-
0: and want to know that information about who is there. Because there's, again, yeah, it just takes one incident. It, t- it takes one incident that li- that's life changing for one family and, and interface with the police helps and community activities. And so knowing the local police officers asking good conversation, I mean, questions about how all those um, policies and practices are implemented and then not shying away, developing both the courage and the skills through practice and community to have hard conversations uh, with young people about the need for reform. As you mentioned, not all police officers are bad and they operate within a system that's founded on, on racism and, and bias. and And we need to actively work and partner to undo that. Right, all right. Well, thanks well, for joining thank me. No, it thank you. Nice to uh, touch base, Cedric, and I look forward to chatting again soon. Take care.
1: All right, bye bye. Bye.
0: All right, so I'm going to be adding in some what to say when features uh, in these podcasts. And in this particular episode, we're going to do a what to say when talking to your kids about police violence. And these will um, complement Dr. Alexander's uh, segment really well. So, what to say when your, let's say, um, like nine, eight, nine, ten 10 uh, year old uh, is approaching you about the fact that um, they've seen things about police violence, George Floyd's murder uh, on social media. And sometimes the conversation goes like this I hey, what, mom, I saw this thing about, like, like, why are the police killing all these black people? And sometimes the question really is that direct, right? And we can say, oh, yeah, you know what? This is a, a, a tricky conversation, but an important one for us. So so here's the thing. As you know, um, and it's hard to talk about because it goes against everything in our family values. But in our society, in the world in general, there are some thoughts that black and brown people you know may be more likely to be aggressive or to engage in like crimes commit crimes and stuff now we know there's all kinds of complicated things that go into that right we know black and brown people aren't more inclined to commit crimes there's a lot of reasons why black and brown people get caught there's a lot of reasons their their communities are more policed there 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 are a lot of complicated like grown up explanations behind why there may be conflicts between black and brown folks and police officers. What you need to know about all this is that it's not fair, it's not right, but you have to be mindful of like, how you interact with police officers and how you are acting when you're out with your friends in ways that white friends of yours don't have to. Um, that's why mom always talks about getting a receipt when you leave the store, Right? always keep your receipt or not carrying big backpacks into places. Um, we had to talk about water guns a while ago in the park, right? It's not your job to uh, fix the whole situation with police, but there are some things you just have to understand that while mama and you know dad and everybody are working to change the, the, the systems in place and change the racism that still impacts police and everybody else, right? Police are members of our community, like all people. Some of them don't hold any bias and interact safely and wonderfully in community. In fact, most of them do. But many of them are going to hold thoughts that uh, may make a situation you run into them later more explosive. So even though it's not fair that we're trying to make you change your behavior a little bit or be aware of your behavior, it's just protective. You need to kind of understand this stuff and yes it's not fair and boy do i wish it were different and i hope that it changes you know in our lifetimes so that other families don't have to keep having these conversations right and then sometimes a kid will say well do do i need to be afraid of the police Mm, i would say cautious cautious is the word that i would use um and and be aware of your surroundings be aware of the decisions that your group of friends are making distance yourself from other people if they are acting kind of wild and goofy um you know there'll be things we talk about as you get older right now what you need to know is most police officers are intending to be safe and protective and most of the time there's not going to be any issue right but we need you to just have your heads up and your eyes up and and be aware that some people are gonna hold these biases that, that like aren't in line with our family values. And so there's things you gotta do to stay safe. And the um, George Floyd situation is just really a tragic uh, example of what happens when bias impacts policing and I'm hoping that it will lead to change, right? So there is a what to say when, an example of a conversation to have with a young person. Hopefully you've been having other conversations so that this isn't the first time they're thinking about their race and their skin tone. And I'm hoping that builds a tool in your toolkit. All right. Thanks for joining All right. Well, thanks for listening today. And if you'd like to find me other places, come take a look at my website, www drlauraanderson.com. There you can join my newsletter and uh, keep in touch and find out what is in the works. You can also join me for coffee and conversation uh, and Facebook at Common cord Psychology Services. So check me out those places and I look forward to further connection. I'm glad you were here today.